This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible and a matching grant will double your gift. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Hello, everybody. Great to have you with us again. Well, every Christian parent prays for the salvation of their children, but we also very much hope and pray that their salvation will help them to make the right moral choices in life. This is a point of stress for a lot of us, though, given what kind of culture our kids are swimming in. Is there a way to help our kids discern right from wrong and to do what is right? Well, we're going to get some help on that today from Christian apologist Josh McDowell, who heads up Josh McDowell Ministry and speaks internationally on apologetics issues and is the author of a great number of best-selling books, including Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and his latest title is called Set Free to Choose Right. Josh, it's wonderful to welcome you back. How are you doing? Oh, it's great to be back, Janet. To be able to be on a program with you is like dying and going to heaven. Oh, I hope not. I hope going to heaven is well. well. No, it's that good. I'm saying it's that good. I don't have to die to go to heaven when I'm on with you. Oh, listen to you. Listen to you. Well, it is an honor to have you here again, Josh. Always great to talk to you. All right, I have a question. Our culture is increasingly telling our kids they have to decide for themselves what is right and wrong. What's your response to the message that the culture is giving kids that right and wrong is up to the individual? Well, I, I think the most important thing that a parent can do today after building a loving, intimate relationship with their child is point out to them how we make, not what the culture says, but how we make right moral choices. And I would say there's more confusion in that area than almost any area, Hmm. Uh, Janet. For example, I'll be speaking to a pastor's conference, a parent seminar, a youth convention or something. I'll make this statement, or I'll go around the audience with a microphone and I'll say, do you believe lying is wrong? Almost every person will first answer, pastors, everyone, yes. Why? Because the Bible says, thou shalt not lie. I'll say that is absolutely ridiculous. Hmm. Nothing, absolutely nothing is morally right or wrong because the Bible says thou shall not. Uh, Now, you might get some nasty emails on that, Janet, but it's because people don't know their Bible. Uh, Here's what I pose, Janet. Is lying wrong because the Bible says thou shall not lie? 98% of Christians say yes. Or does the Bible say thou shall not lie because lying is wrong. Hmm. Now, that's a biblical approach. It's not wrong because the Bible says it, but the Bible says it because it is wrong. And in our culture today, no matter what the culture teaches, our Christian kids, for the most part, they know what's right and what is wrong. They're losing that now. But the thing they don't know is why is it right and why is it wrong? Yes. And if you don't raise them, by why it's right or wrong, you're raising your children legalistically, and you will lose your children spiritually. That's a really good point. So if somebody said to you, all right, Josh, I'll put it back on you. If you say that lying is wrong, and that's why the Bible says lying is wrong, what makes lying wrong? How do you make that argument? Oh, very simple, because God is truth. 
You see, anything contrary to the holy, just, righteous nature of God is false. Anything that coincides with the holy, just, righteous nature of God is right or righteous. And this is why we have to teach our children who God is. Absolutely. That they're not, they're not uh, worshiping some mythical person or something, but who is in his character and his nature. For example, I've never found anyone in the Right to Life movement, Janet, that could tell me why killing is wrong. Hmm. They almost always say, because the Bible says I should not kill. Yeah. That's legalism. Why is killing wrong? Because God is life. Yeah. And he created life in his image. Right. That's why it is wrong. Not because the Bible says I should not kill, but the Bible says I should not kill because killing is wrong. Why? Because the person, character, and nature of God is life. And so we always have got to learn to take our children back to the person, character, and nature of God. It's excellent because that's what you're really doing when you're framing it that way, and you're right about that, is you're getting past a list of rules and a list of do's and don'ts back to the one who gave them to us. Now, this is so important because there are a lot of Christian parents who will say, it doesn't mean much for my kid to be a moral kid if that kid is not saved. How do you blend together the need for evangelism and discipleship of our kids alongside this quest to help them make good moral choices? Because it's not always the case, Josh, as you know, that if a kid says, well, I prayed to receive Christ and I asked him to come into my life and I repented of my sin, there are still a lot of those kids who would claim that testimony who go on to make terrible moral choices. So how do we solve that? Well, one. As parents, with each one of my children, I had all mapped out for four, five, six years of discipling each one of my children. Great. Uh, And it all started out by, who is God? Uh, How do we know who God is? How do we know it's true? So what if God is love? Uh, How do I apply it to my life? And I went through 12 major beliefs in the scriptures with my children because I learned that If they follow a book, they'll fail, because Hmm. that's legalism. Now, the Bible is not legalistic, but the way so many people teach and live it, it becomes legalistic Mm -hmm. uh, to them. We need to raise our children out of a relationship with their Heavenly Father. And like with any relationship to stay healthy, you need to get to know one another. And uh, this is why every time I take one of my children to school or a ball game or something else, I would think of some aspect of God I was going to share in the car. And I'd always start out with something that happened at school or something, ask him a question that would lead right in, okay, well, God is just. Now, what does that mean, etc.? cetera? Uh, and so as parents, we've got to disciple our children. Second, even if a child never comes to Christ, to be moral in your living has a lot of benefits. Yeah. To just you personally, uh, it has benefits. I know a lot of people that really live out the character of God, but they don't know him personally, and it breaks my heart. Yeah. And they're some of the hardest people to reach for Christ. True. Uh, I have a fellow that I just love, and he's just the nicest guy in the world. And, and that's a problem. He won't come to Christ because of it. He doesn't really see himself as sinful. Wow. And no matter what you say, and you know of any person I ever met that wasn't sinful, it was this guy. He's a Mexican fellow. And... Uh, but he, he has many benefits to living a moral life, but not eternal salvation right, uh, right. out of it. Yeah. But here again, 
it's one thing to teach our children what is right and what is wrong, Janet. The key is to also teach them why is it right, why is it wrong. Good. The reason is, in our culture today, it's different than when the parents are growing up. You could survive in your culture as a parent when you were growing up by a good belief system. Not anymore with the Internet and pornography. If you raise your children just with a good belief system, you'll lose them. They will turn away. We need to raise them with convictions. Now, what is a conviction? A conviction is knowing what you believe, knowing why you believe it, and experiencing it in your life. Yes. Well, if we do not raise our children with moral principles that are more than just beliefs, but convictions, Janet, no matter how much we pray for our kids and their family devotions, we will lose our children. I know you're right about that. It's so true. So you just can't rest on your laurels and say, ah, the youth group pastor will deal with that. I'll just drop Johnny off on Wednesday night. That should do the trick. That's not going to do the trick in this culture. What the youth pastor should be doing is reinforcing what mom and dad has already taught in the home. Right. Um, I wanted my church. I wanted my youth pastor and pastor to talk about sex when my kids were younger. Why? Because I wanted my church, my youth pastor, my pastors to reinforce what I had already taught my children yes. about sexuality. And this is why I wrote the book, Set Free to Make Right Choices, to help parents. First of all, parents to understand why are things right? Why are things wrong? Second, how do you pass that on to your children? That it will help your children to make consistent right choices doesn't mean they're not going to make wrong choices but consistently they will make right choices well i'll tell you what we're going to talk about it we're going to go to a break first though josh mcdowell with us his book set free to choose right equipping today's kids to make right moral choices for life we'll come back on janet meffer today right after this When this young mom came to a preborn center, she was planning to have an abortion. But after receiving love and support and meeting her baby on ultrasound, she chose life. When I walked in for the ultrasound and I saw my baby and I heard his heartbeat, my mind changed completely. I couldn't do that to my baby. I have decided to keep it. Preborn partners with clinics and cities with the highest abortion rates in the country. Will you help preborn save these precious lives? When a mom in crisis sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, she's 80% more likely to choose life. And that's just the beginning of the story. I know that with support and with God by my side, I'll be able to do this, not just for me, but for my baby. For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help rescue five babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. Did you miss the deadline to sign up for a health care program at the end of 2020? If so, I have good news. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th. 
meaning that if you're looking to enroll in a new healthcare program for 2021, you can do so without the need for a qualifying event. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their healthcare needs. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that offers affordable healthcare sharing programs starting as low as $199 per month. Liberty HealthShare gives you the ability to choose any doctor or hospital across the nation. Memberships are for individuals, couples, and families, offering a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. Always a joy to be talking with Christian apologist and bestselling author Josh McDowell. His latest book, Set Free to Choose Right, equipping today's kids to make right moral choices for life. And you made a great point, Josh. What we need to do is not just teach our kids what is right and wrong, but why those things are right or wrong and understand how to pass those on to our children. Now, let's just take one example, because this is the big one that we're hearing all the time. But for example, you see statistics even among kids within the church, evangelical churches, who believe that there's nothing wrong with homosexuality or the redefinition of marriage. They are more squishy, as it were, on this issue than previous generations. This generation upcoming, the Generation Z, has a less biblical worldview than the millennials, who had a less biblical worldview than the Generation X and before them, the boomers, etc., etc. So we're seeing a biblical worldview declining with every subsequent generation. How do you address this issue? When a kid comes to you, maybe, Josh, and says, I have friends who are gay. I have friends who are transsexual or transgender or what have you. I don't see anything wrong with it. This person is just living his given identity that God gave to him. And and you know, biblically speaking, that can't be defended. What's the best approach for dealing with that issue as a mom or a dad and trying to teach what is right and wrong on that issue of sexuality? I deal with this in the book. The first thing you do, you've got to make sure you've taught your children or teaching your children the biblical concept of sexuality. Why did God create sex? What did he create sex for? How sex is so beautiful. How our private parts are not private because they're dirty. They're private because they're so beautiful, so meaningful, so wonderful. If you do not embed within your children a healthy biblical view of sexuality, I don't care what you say about any of the other moral issues It'll fall on deaf ears. Wow. So the first thing I would do is reinforce with children why God created sex, the beauty of sex, the purpose. Why did God create marriage, the purpose of marriage? Then in the light of that, I would show some of these other lifestyles how are contrary to the very person, character, and nature of God. Mm, good. And then I would do like I show in the book. I would then walk my child through how when we obey God, because all of his commandments about sexuality, men, women, everything, is based on his character being love. God is love, which means protect and provide. So we say God is love. What does that mean? God protects and provides. Every commandment of God, every time the Bible says thou show not, is not negative. It is positive. It's God saying, look, I love you so much. Don't do that. Why? Because I want to protect you and provide for you. 
for all that I created your sexuality for. Yeah, good. For example, in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, every young person, parents take this as negative. Do not commit sexual immorality. Now, how negative can you get? No, that's positive. Read the rest of the verse. Flee sexual immorality. For every other sin you do outside the what? Every other sin is outside the body, but an immoral man sins against his own body. Right. And one thing I do with young people, let me show you why God says, wait till that commitment of marriage in a secure relationship. Why? Sexually transmitted diseases. In 1960, one out of every 60 teenagers uh, had a sexually transmitted disease. 1970, one out of 46. 1980, about one out of 31. 1990, about one out of every 16. 2000, see, 2010 was one out of every four. Mm. You know what it is now? Oh. One out of every two kids who have ever had sex, they do have a sexually transmitted disease. Oh, man. And he says, do not commit sexual immorality. Why? Because I want to protect you from the one sin that you commit against your own body. Great. That's true. And yeah. I, I get kids' attention when I do that. And That's I true. point this out in the book. But here's one of the keys. In the culture around us, I went and bought, it was either 12, 14 books, used in middle schools and high schools throughout the country to teach right from wrong. Every one of them had three to five steps, but they all had this incorporated. One, look at the choice you have. Evaluate the choice. Second, what are the consequences of each choice? Hmm. But listen to the third one. Make the choice that is best for you. Uh. Not make the choice that is right. Not make the choice that's best for most people. No, make the choice that is best for you. This is why my wife and I developed four steps that we taught our children to look at choices. One, consider the choice. Look, you could do this or you could do that. Then consider the consequences of those choices. Second, compare it to God. Right. Compare it to God, his very person, character, and nature. Third, and this is a great one, count, commit to his way. This is a hard one, Janet. And if our kids don't see us committing to God's way and decisions, they never will. True. So consider the choice, compare it to God, and the big step is commit to God's way. But then fourth, to teach our children, and I show parents how to do this in a book. When we commit to God's way, then we need to count on his protection and provision. And each chapter, as I give all these different illustrations for parents to use with their children, I point out how each one of them, God will protect and provide. And it's so neat as a parent shares that with a child. So those are four steps that I have found that works with young people. I love and that. And adults. Yep, absolutely. I was going to say that would work not just on children. That would work on adults, too. A lot of people are looking for answers. And, you know, it's kind of funny, Josh, th there's been a lot of discussion in the last several decades about how parents have become soft and the rise of the helicopter parent and all of these sorts of things. And it seems that one of the things that this generation may not have as much as previous generations did was the parent as moral authority. It seems you have the problem of a lot of parents wanting 
to be friends with their kids. I'll let you drink even though you're underage as long as you do it at home. Because if you don't do it, you know, if you do it out there, you might get hurt. But at least if you do it here, I'm here to watch you. What about the importance of Christian parents having confidence in their moral authority to talk to their kids about what the Lord says in his authority? How much does that come into play when you were dealing with your kids? Absolutely. If they need it at all, I am the parent and they are the child. But I'll tell you this. Everything that I taught my children, Janet, if I didn't live it out in my life and my marriage to Dottie, then one, I failed my children and my children will not look at me as a moral authority. Right. When I teach my children right from wrong, they need to see that in my life. And this is why when times I would have choices and everything to make in the ministry and all, and I would sit down with my children, sometimes the four of them together, each one individually, and I'd say, you know, Dad had this choice to make this week. I could have done this or I could have done that. If I would have done this, a lot more money would have come in. But, you know, I would have jeopardized my morality. Oh, boy. And then I shared with them the decision I made and then how God honored that decision. And I bet I shared that with each one of my children probably 30, 40 times over the years. Hmm. And all of a sudden, they see it in my life. Then they see it in my teaching to them. That's the best way to do it. But all research on parenting shows and I've got this all documented, that the parent who's the most effective is the authoritative parent who is relational. Great. That's Rules great. without relationships lead to rebellion. Yes. Right from wrong without relationships leads to rebellion. It's all true. It's all true. You know, what about the parent who will say, Josh, I, I want to do everything you're suggesting in my home and I'm going to start today if I haven't been doing it properly up until now. But when my child leaves my home and goes to school, even if it's a Christian school, sometimes you're facing these sorts of issues. Now they're around a peer group and now they have to face a situation where they may be the only person in that peer group who is thinking correctly on some of these issues. And that child is having a hard time than coming home after school and saying, this is really hard. I feel so alone. What do you do to encourage a kid who wants to do what is right when all of his peer group perhaps are not supporting him? I will say this. Go to the, the site. It's called, same name as a book, Set Free to Choose Right. SetFreeToChooseRight.com. And a parent can download free, not only a lot of material on the book, but they can download free a presentation by Dottie and me on seven principles of building loving, intimate relationships with your child. Great. Very simple and be mind-boggling. So just go to setfreetochooseright.com. You can download. So the first thing you have to do is what is your relationship? If you have built into that child love, respect, and truth over the years, then when they go to college, they are way out in front of everyone yeah. to make right choices. Yeah. And research shows this. The one thing that will override pornography, the Internet, gaming, uh, peer pressure, the university, everything, is a loving, intimate relationship with one's daddy. Amen. That's Isn't true. that me? Not the mother. The daddy. The daddy. Is yeah. the one thing research shows will override all of this. And when they go off to the university... It's the relationship, and the book, Set Free to Choose Right, needs to be taught in the context of a loving relationship. 
So if they go to setfreetochooseright.com, they can download it free, and I'll guarantee you this. Those parents will get excited because they'll start realizing I can do it. <laughs> Which is what we need. We need that sort of encouragement. It is a very, very high calling to be able to raise children in the fear and admonition of the Lord and to help them choose the right moral choices. And I just love it. Set Free to Choose Right, the new book, and also the website, setfreetochooseright.com by Josh McDowell. Josh, it really was heaven having you here. Thank you so much. Oh, Janet, it's like heaven being with you. God bless. <laughs> God bless you, Josh. Thanks a lot for being with us. And we'll be right back. This Janet Meffer Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible and a matching grant will double your gift. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now here's your host, Janet Mefford. Well, we are back on Janet Meffer today. There was a story in the news about a Church of Scotland minister in Edinburgh who is teaching his congregation that Jesus did not die for our sins. He even called the atonement ghastly theology. This pastor, the Reverend Scott McKenna, told his congregation it is an obstacle because it depicts God as a potentate who demands blood for offenses he has suffered. Our sins have offended him and he demands a blood sacrifice. And he added, I'm almost embarrassed explaining this theology because it is well past its sell-by date and in some sense it is quite immoral. Wow, what an ironic heresy to be coming from a minister in Scotland, the country that has had such an incredible legacy of biblical Christianity and revival. But Scotland, like the rest of the West, including the United States, has fallen into a lot of apostasy, which makes that country's history of Christian revival even more worth examining in our own day. And that's what we're going to do today with Tom Lenny. Tom is an author and researcher into Scottish Awakenings, and he owns one of the largest private libraries of revival literature in the UK. And he is out with a new book covering Scotland's extraordinary legacy of Christian revivals between the 16th and 19th centuries. It is called Land of Many Revivals. And Tom, so great to have you with us. How are you? Hi. I'm very well, thanks. Well, thank you? you. Just fine. I was very disturbed, I would say, to read that anecdote about this minister, but I guess I shouldn't be surprised. I mean, how would you characterize the state of Christianity in Scotland right now? Um, the state of Christianity in Scotland is probably very similar to the state of Christianity in in most of Europe, certainly Western Europe, and probably similar to what it is in, in all the Western world, maybe including America. So there's a very lively evangelical Christian church, and then there's the more moderate liberal church, you know, to which this guy that you mentioned, Scott McKenna, belongs. Right, right. Incredible. Well, you know quite a bit, obviously, about the history of revival in Scotland, but for an American audience, how would you answer the question about why revivals, particularly in Scotland, are worth studying and worth knowing about for other Christians? Okay. Well, I think one of the main reasons is because revivals have been so prolific in Scotland. There's been so many of them, um, right from the time of the Scottish Reformation in the early 1500s, right up actually until the mid-1900s, and even to a lesser extent since then, there have been revivals in Scotland. They have characterized the, the social and religious 
um, setting of Scotland for, for all those centuries. And I don't think there's any country in the world that has such an outstanding legacy of evangelical revivals as this nation. Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, a lot of people will know the name John Knox, the father of Presbyterianism, and will know something of him in his life, but not so much about other men who God has used along the way to bring revival to Scotland. When you go back to the 16th century, for example, in the wake of the Protestant Reformation, how was Scotland awakened spiritually at that time? What was the chain of events that took place? Oh, well, it's quite a long, complicated story, really. Um, but the, the dawn of the Reformation came, well, as you probably know, in Germany first through people like Martin Luther. Sure. And then uh, there were a few um, ecclesiastical um, students like Patrick Hamilton from Scotland and one or two others who went uh, to continental Europe to study. And they encountered this Reformed uh, preaching and they brought it back to Scotland. And in, in quite a short period of time, in the early 1500s, the whole religious um, scenario of Scotland began to change and became Protestant. It was, it was a total reformation. It happened quickly and swiftly. And there was a bit of violence as well. Yes, um, yes. Some you know, Catholic monasteries and churches were burned down and people were tried. And there, there was some violence, but it was... It was relatively peaceful compared to what happened in some countries. Sure. Now, after the Reformation came to Scotland, as you describe, how did that affect Scotland? What were the implications of the Reformation on the lives of the people there? Um, I just think that there was a greater emphasis on personal piety, on people trying to live godly lives and to please God, and, and an emphasis on people having a personal relationship with God, that maybe didn't exist so much prior to that. Right. Um, the Scottish Reformation also brought about a huge um, reformation, basically, in, in education, because John Knox insisted that schools were started all over the country, in every parish, and that every person had a right to education. Yes. So it, it wasn't just the religious setting that changed, it was education, and, and many other facets of, of social life. Right. Now, you talk about the post-Reformation period, the years between 1572 and 1600, and you mentioned some names a lot of people won't know, Robert Bruce and John Davidson and so forth. But what was the, you know, you had the, the Scottish Reformation and then the post-Reformation period. What characterized that particular period as far as revival was concerned, the post-Reformation period? The post-Reformation period. Um well, I think what characterized that was um, an emphasis on, you know, um, rural communities becoming transformed by spiritual revival, which perhaps hadn't happened before. So entire communities um, being touched with the gospel, and, and, and this is really what revival is, when a community is touched by the power of God and, and a large proportion of its inhabitants become interested in in God and in spiritual things in a way that they weren't before, including avowed atheists. Right, right. But how and when did... that happens within a community um, on, on quite a big scale, then, then you get a revival, I suppose, really. Yes. And that began to happen in, in the late 1500s and early 1600s through people like you mentioned, like John Welsh of Ayr and John Livingston and, sure. and so many others in the post-Reformation period. It was a very exciting time. But it was a very difficult time as well because um, the, the, 
the times known as the, the killing times occurred then when um, a lot of Christians were, were persecuted by, by the state and by the church. Right. Who were completely against these reformed teachings. Now, I'm curious to ask, when you name some of these other uh, purveyors of revival and these other men who were preachers and so forth, how did these revivals primarily spread? Was it generally through the churches themselves? Was it open air? Like, I know you talk about Whitfield in the book. What was the means that God used as the word of God was spreading? In, in terms of details, was it in the churches? Was it word of mouth? What happened exactly? Well, that depends on, on what periods we're talking about and on whereabouts in the, in the country or in the world we're talking about, because it, that tended to vary over time and between one geographical location and another. But often it was, yes, sometimes through the churches, but more commonly through um, just ordinary people just spreading abroad the word of, of the gospel that had transformed their lives and then transformed the lives of many people in their in their communities, and often through the preachers themselves. I mean, you mentioned George Whitfield, of course. I mean, he traveled so widely just throughout his whole life. Right. I mean, he crossed the Atlantic many times. In fact, that was the first truly transatlantic revival, it was largely through people like George Whitfield and John Wesley, um, where, you, where you have revival occurring simultaneously in America through people like Jonathan Edwards in Northampton yes. and through George Whitfield's um, itinerant preaching. And again, in, in Scotland and in England and in Wales. So this was like the 1730s, the 1740s. How would through you... transatlantic revival. Sure. And, and men like George Whitfield and John Wesley largely were responsible for spreading that so widely. Would you say there was much of a difference between the evangelical revival that you're referring to there under Whitfield and Wesley and the revival under John Knox? What, what would be any significant differences between those revivals? Ooh, that, that's a good question. Um, well, the term evangelical wasn't really used uh, in, in the time of John Knox, so he would certainly not have called himself an evangelical. Hmm. He would have called himself a Protestant, certainly. Um, but very, very similar, really. I, I just think it became a bit more um, defined by the time of George Whitfield and John Wesley, like um, preaching to get conversions. I think that became more more focused by the 17th and 18th century, and maybe John Knox didn't quite quite have that expecting people to become born again. Yes, it was maybe expected to be more a sort of gradual thing. Right. Very interesting. There's much more to talk about. We're going to do that when we come back. Tom Lenny talking about the land of many revivals. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today. Fellow Christians are suffering in Africa. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. Pastor Lumo ministers in Mozambique near the Indian Ocean. He's been beaten and jailed many times, not merely for what he believes, but for how he lives out his faith. You see, Lumo has been quietly and faithfully sharing the gospel with Muslims, and many are coming to Christ. But extremists have assaulted Lumo, his family, and many in his church. But they're not asking for an end to the persecution they face. Instead, they're praying for God's word to endure and 
and persevere as new followers of Jesus Christ. That's exactly why we're partnering with Bible League International to send Bibles to 1,500 new believers in Africa. $5 sends a Bible, $50 sends 10, and every gift given will be doubled. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D, or there's an Open the Floodgates banner at JanetMefford.com. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, and God bless you for caring. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. If you're in need of a new healthcare program, but you missed the open enrollment deadline in December, it's not too late. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th. During this time, you can enroll in the healthcare program of your choice without the need for a qualifying event. This means you can now enroll in a healthcare sharing program from Liberty HealthShare with memberships for individuals, couples, and families. You can find a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Plus, you really can choose the doctor and hospital of your choice. Best of all, membership options start for as low as $199 a month. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their health care needs. What are you waiting for? Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. Well, a lot of us here in America don't know a whole lot about church history in general, and we particularly don't know much about other countries' church history. And Scotland is definitely a country whose history is worth studying. We're talking with Tom Lenny, who's written a book about the revival history of Scotland, and he's entitled his book Land of Many Revivals. So we were talking a little bit about the early revivals in the 16th century and, and on into Whitfield and Wesley's day. You also mentioned something called the Highland Awakening and then how you know the awakening spread after that tell us about that time period tom okay well that began in the late 1700s there there was quite a lull actually in the mid 1700s when evangelical preaching really sort of began to fade away and more moderate preaching i mean you're talking earlier about this guy scott mckenna in the church today and his, his, his really liberal teaching. And, and that, 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 that's not a new thing within the church in Scotland. And that goes right back to the 1700s, if not before. And there, there became just a general awareness that, 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 that there needed to be a revival of true reformed preaching within Scotland. And especially in the north of Scotland, where much of the land still lay under Catholicism, um, and there, there needed to be just a real awakening of spiritual life. Mm. So a number of preachers decided to go and visit these, uh, these highland areas where it's very difficult terrain and not easy to, to travel along. But especially there was um, brothers called the Haldane brothers, and they went on several itinerant preaching tours in the very late 1700s, 1797 they started. And they went all over, literally, to the very far north of Scotland, mm. to the island of Orkney, which is where I was born and brought up, and Shetland, and, and other counties like Caithness and Sutherland and Northshire. They, they went all over the highlands of Scotland and, and preached the evangelical gospel, which many, many people had never heard before. And a genuine revival of religion occurred in many of these places, and hundreds, if not thousands, were, were brought to 
Christ. That is incredible. And just pile upon pile here, as you're mentioning, these different revivals that the Lord kept reviving and awakening again and again, his people and people who were lost coming to Christ for the first time. What are your reflections, just as you look on it historically, at just the amazing situation that happened in your country? This is just astounding, really. Right. You you mean just the, the sheer number of revivals that sure. have over the years? Yes. Yes. It it is astounding and I mean even within Scotland, even within the church in Scotland, I think an awful lot of Christians aren't really aware of this incredible spiritual revival heritage that Scotland owns. And I find that such a pity, and that's why I, d- I decided to research this book. And of course, even before I did my research, I knew there were quite a number of famous revivals that had happened in Scotland, and we've talked about some of them. But I, you know, it was only when I went deeper and deeper in my research that I discovered there was just more and more and more. And just virtually every decade of, of the period from the early 1500s to the late 1800s, early 1900s, just almost every decade there was a revival somewhere in Scotland. And oftentimes, you know, in many, many parts of Scotland. Yeah. So, yeah, it's an amazing legacy. It really but, but is. I guess that if, if people did research into revivals in America in, in, a, in a big way, they'd probably find um, a revival heritage that would astound Christians in America, too, to be quite honest. Yeah, perhaps that could be your next project. <laughs> you can do well, your I would love to, but I think that's better left to, you know, to a native in America. <laughs> well, you're right, though. I think that that would be a great thing undertaking, really, to find out what, what the Lord has done in different areas of the United States as well. But what's so interesting to me about Scotland is your country has had such an enormous impact, not just there, but but throughout the UK and throughout the world. What what did you discover when you were doing your research about the impact of those revivals beyond your own borders? Yes, that's true. Um, well, I discovered that a lot of missionaries that went out to different countries from Scotland actually um, initiated or, or God began through them a revival in, in some of these foreign places. That has happened many times. And even one of Scotland's most famous revivalists, you, um, you've probably heard of him, Duncan Campbell. He was involved in a revival in, in the Western Islands of Scotland, in the Hebridean Islands, as recently as the 1950s. And that was really a major revival. And it's become one, it's actually become one of the most famous revivals in the world, I would say, yeah. along with perhaps the Welsh revival of 1904. But, but that same man, Duncan Campbell, he died in the 1970s. He was actually instrumental in one or two revivals in other places, too. Um, amazingly, including a revival in Canada, uh, but that began in Saskatchewan in the 1970s. Um, he was, I mean, it's a long story, but he was involved in the, in the beginnings of that. Wow. He was correctly known as an instrument of revival because revival seemed to spring up in so many places that he visited. So, yeah, uh, the connections between Scotland and revivals in other countries, um, yeah, they're, they're quite large. Yeah, very significant. Now, you also refer in your book to a period of time during the mid-1800s called the Disruption Era, I should say, the Disruption Era. What was that sure. all about? Sure. Well, the disruption um, in Scotland was was the name given to the period when um, many evangelicals within the National Church, the Church of Scotland, became disaffected with the state of the Church of Scotland, precisely because of what we've been talking about just recently about um, moderacy within the Church of Scotland and the lack of um, 
the evangelical preaching, basically, and they became disaffected. And it, it came to a head in 1843 when a large proportion of Church of Scotland ministers all at one time left the Church of Scotland and they started a new denomination called the Free Church of Scotland that began in 1843. And of course, the Free Church of Scotland still exists today and it's still very much an evangelical denomination. Whereas the Church of Scotland, the National Church, still exists today as well, but it's more mixed. You've got evangelical congregations and you've got non-evangelical congregations. Right. So the disruption of 1843 was, was a big event. But but in the years preceding the disruption, um, while while people were, were considering leaving the Church of Scotland and, and arguing within the General Assembly about um, issues within the Church of Scotland, at the same time as this, there began this spiritual awakening throughout the land that was very much connected to mm-hmm. discussions within the church. And it was a very, a very general awakening, probably the most widespread revival that had occurred in Scotland to that time. I don't think there was a single county within the nation that wasn't affected. Incredible. One of the things that you mention also in the book, Tom, is the fact that, of course, a revival is the work of God. Uh, absolutely. But there are also these natural factors involved. These men who God used who were absolutely uncompromised when it came to preaching the word and believing the word of God. What are your thoughts about these men that God used, these preachers, to bring about all these different revivals and the significance of the natural factors? Right. Yes. I mean, I do believe revivals come from God, absolutely. But there are natural factors. And and obviously, the instruments that God uses is, is one of those factors. There's no doubt in that if men, certain men weren't in the right place at the right time and, and so fully dedicated to Christ, that some of these revivals probably wouldn't have occurred at all. Yeah. Or if they did occur, they wouldn't have occurred in such a, such a significant and dramatic manner. For sure. Now, who would you point to in Scottish history as the most significant person in the history of revival? Oh, wow. That is a big question. I don't think there is one single person. Um, I could name quite a number of people, but one person that I find uh, particularly significant would be um, Robert Murray McShane. Oh, yes. Uh, Yeah. A, A great man of God. He died when he was only 29 years old of an illness, but he was known as a particularly just profoundly spiritual man. There was just a holiness that seemed to emanate from him. Just, uh, you know, many people who, who weren't known for flattery just say the most incredible things about him. And he was used uh, in revival in his own city of Dundee, where he was um, a minister at the time. And he went and preached in other places. And um, I just think he had, a, he, had a, he had a huge influence on a lot of people in Scotland. Yes, his writings and there were other too. men yes. um, around the same time as that. We're talking about, again, the 1830s, 1840s, like William Chalmers Burns, who was an amazing preacher, and he certainly ignited sparks of revival in, well, all over central Scotland, actually. Uh, he later went to be a missionary in China, where he died. Mm-hmm. And then, then we talk about Duncan Campbell much more recently, in the 1950s. He was, he was a wonderful instrument of revival and had a huge impact on, on many people, not just in Scotland, but in, in other parts of Britain and certainly in America and Canada, too, because in the 1960s especially, he, he made a number of trips to America where he spoke in a lot of churches about revival, and he helped ignite little local revivals in different parts of America, which mm. probably not many Americans today know about. That is so interesting. Well, the whole book is interesting, Land of Many Revivals by Tom Lenny. Tom, thank you so much for being with us today. 
You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. Yes, thank you. A lot oh, I'd love it. Thank you so much for being with us. People need to read the book. It is fascinating and encouraging. The Lord can send revival, and He can use men of God to preach His Word and bring it about. Very encouraging. Thanks for being with us on Janet Meffer Today, our website, JanetMeffer.com. This hour of Janet Meffer Today has been brought to you by Bible League International. $5 sends one Bible and a matching grant will double your gift. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD.